I'm glad you're here with us this morning. And uh, as we celebrate worshiping together as a family, so this is our family service, and so children will get to stay in here today. And uh, I want to challenge you parents uh, to be an example to our, our kids of how to lean into Scripture this morning uh, and to listen with all our hearts, minds, uh, and strength this morning. So as we get ready to, to uh, open up God's Word, let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, God, that it is in you that all blessings flow. God, we are grateful that you have not only loved us from before, God, but you have redeemed us. And we are thankful, God, that you have given us all that we need, Father, for life, all that we need um, to do what you've called us to do. We pray that this morning, Father, as we open your word, that you would also open the eyes of our hearts to hear you and to know you this morning. And I pray, Father, that um, all the other churches that meet this morning, God, that they would be um, led this morning by pastors who deeply love you and are consumed with you. And that this morning as they get up to preach, God, that you would not only bless their preparation, but God, we pray that the gospel message would be clearly preached and understood this morning. We pray, God, for a revival to break out in Greenville and the surrounding areas. And God, this morning as we look at what your word has to say about being content, we pray, God, even, even now, that we would have open hearts and open minds. And even if we feel like that maybe your word does not apply to us in this, in this moment today, we know that it does. And so we ask, God, that you would um, begin to change our hearts and minds because of your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning as I got ready to leave, did everything I needed to do, and I'm about to walk out the door, and my son stops me, and you know, he was saying, I'm going to be in service with you today, right? And I said, yeah, yeah you're going to be in the service because all the kids are in there. And he said, whatever you do, just don't get on stage and say blah, 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 blah. And so nothing like, you know, setting your mind at ease and your son thinking you're going to get up and speak nonsense. So uh, very, very much looking forward to uh, being here with you this morning. Excited about opening God's Word here. And, and, um, and a couple months ago, um, Pastor Matt had come and talked to me and said, hey, would you be interested in filling in for me on this Sunday? Uh, we'll be in Seattle. And, and honestly, I thought, uh, do, are you sure that you want me to fill in for you um, uh, when you're gone in Seattle. And so we've been praying for the last couple of months about, God, what would you have me teach? There's hundreds and thousands of passages that we could look at this morning and open up. And so as I began praying and studying and saying, God, what would you have us to look at this morning? There's one passage in particular that continued to come to my mind. And so this morning I want to share with you, and I want us to look at this passage, um, not in a new way, but with new eyes and new hearts that are opened to hear from the Lord. And I've been praying for you and praying for me and walking through this text. My prayer has been very, very simple, that we would consider how our hearts and minds can begin to become ungrasped from the American dream and begin to be more grasped around who Jesus is. And, I, and I've been praying, honestly, I mean, I'll be honest with you, as I was praying and preparing for this week, I really thought, you know, man, this is going to be an easy message to, to teach and preach, and because I've got this down, like this idea of being content, like I've got it, and I've arrived, and no further than saying those words out loud under my breath, 
um, God began to really challenge my heart this morning and uh, this week, and so I pray that he'll also challenge yours as we open up Scripture together. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Philippians 4 is where we're going to be. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, but Philippians 4, specifically verses 10 through 13. And I'll read this this morning. Paul says, And I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've probably heard that last verse over and over and over in our lives. And in fact, you probably have a coffee mug or a um, cat poster in your house uh, that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what we know. And we kind of use it as our mantra to say, I can do anything, right? I can do whatever I set my mind to. I can do this because of Jesus. But, but as we look at the context of this verse, it's not at all what is being taught. And we have kind of and we have kind of changed what the meaning of that is to kind of fit the way we see things, especially as Americans. And so I want to kind of set the stage just for a minute, and then we're going to jump into the passage and talk about a couple things that I think are important that we need to see as we read God's Word this morning. And so this is a, a letter written by Paul to the church at Philippi. And so as there, when we get to the passage where we're going to get to right now, he is in chains writing to this church to encourage them and to challenge them. And what had happened is that people had been sending some support to him early on in his ministry. And then there became a time where people were not sending support. A lot of that, we can, you can see the context of this in 2 Corinthians 8, where it will tell us a lot about how there was um, persecution and there were times where there was no money to be had. And so people reached these tough times in life and they went through trials and they couldn't give. But now the church at Philippi has been giving back again to Paul. And so he's given him back, he's given more money and resources back to him to support him, even though now he's in jail. And so it's kind of the immediate context of where we're going to be. And so as we look at verse 10 specifically, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, and I think in this passage, in this verse specifically, we can see one big thing. And I think that God calls you and I to be generous givers. We're called to be that. And this is not just, the, it's not a command here that he's given, but it's the example that's being said. It's what's come before him. He's saying, look, these people have given. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And now at length that you've revived your concern for me. He said, you've always been concerned, but you've not always had the opportunity. But I'm grateful that you revived this. Now, the context of this passage, and if you were to break it down and study each of these words and say this sentence and, and how it all relates together, you would see that Paul is not saying, I'm so grateful to the Philippians for their gift, but he's saying, I'm so grateful for the Lord for meeting the needs that I have. And what he's telling the church at Philippi is that you've been a part of that because you were willing to give and give generously. So because you gave, because you were willing to sacrifice, when it, as soon as you had opportunity, you gave back. And when you gave, God used that to provide for me. 
Because the reality of it is, God is the one who provides, it's not just someone else. This isn't a business contract where Paul said, hey church, I'll come visit you this many times and you send me this much money. And after a while, I'll come visit you more times and then you send me a little bit more money. That wasn't how it worked. It was, God said, hey, to the, to the church, hey, renew your concern for, um, for Paul. Give back to him. And, and Paul said, God, I'm just going to trust you to provide all that I need. But we're called to give generously. And it, and it really is a hard thing for us to do, and I don't really know why. Because what you have is not really yours in the first place. Right? It was given to you to be a steward of it until a time to where it can be used. I'm thinking about it this way, right? When you die... All your stuff goes into someone's will, and they get it, right? And then when they die, all their stuff goes into another will, right? And then someone else gets it, and then someone else gets it. And the reality of it is, one day, someone else that you've never even heard of will will have all the stuff that you have access to now. Because when you go, you just go. So you've been given something to be a steward of, not to own. You don't own your money. You don't own your car. You don't own your Um, your house. You don't own your children. You don't own your family, but you've been given to be a steward of those things. And so God says, now work wisely with those things. And so it should be no surprise that we're called to give generously. In fact, the church began this way. Acts chapter four, if you have time to read later today, you should read through it. It's an an incredible passage uh, that he talks about how the first church, what they looked like. And at the end of chapter four, he he says this. He says, and there was no one in the community of, of Christians who had need. Because people would do this. Oh, you need money? I'll just sell my land and give you the money. Oh, you need this? Well, I'll sell this and you can come live with me and you can be a part of this community. The idea of giving generously was always something that was a part of the, of the culture of being Christians. And as a follower of Jesus, we're called, and I think Paul gives us an example here, that we are called to be giving generously of our money, of our time, of our resources. We're called to do that. And this is the example that he sets here. I wonder, you know, the Philippians lacked opportunity, but never concern. It's what verse 10 tells us. You never lacked concern for me. You just lacked opportunity in order to give it. But I wonder if today, if we're just the opposite. We happen to lack the concern, but not the opportunity. So many of us have the opportunity to give. We have resources to give, but maybe we don't do it because, well, it's just hard to give up our stuff. The Philippians had concern but no opportunity. And I think as Christians today, maybe many of us in here, we have plenty of opportunity and we have no concern. And I wonder today if that describes you and I. So why is it, why, why is it so hard to give generously? Why is it so hard to give? And I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to give is what is the point of this passage. And that is, and that is the second thing I want to I share with you this morning is that you and I are called to be content. We're called to contentment in our lives. And we can't give generously because we're not content with what we have. We're not content with where we are. Look, at, look and follow here in verse 11 and in verse 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am called to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's very clear at the front. He says, I did not say this out of need. 
I'm not, I have not been going to people saying, hey, I have this need. Can you give me 20 bucks? I have this need. No, he said, I'm relying on the provision and the power of God to supply all that I have. And in fact, I can rely on that and I can be someone who gives because I'm content with where God has me. I'm content whether I am in, in feast or famine, whether I abound or whether I am humbled. This word here, he uses to be content. Paul uses it several times in the New Testament, but it's also used in, in early Greek writings, especially by the Stoic philosophers. And their philosophy was that we're called to be content, right? You're supposed to be a content person. And how they would define that would be that you are self-sufficient, that you can rely on yourself enough to be able to, to uh, be content with life, to where you can be happy if you can make your own happiness. So that was kind of the point of what the Stoic philosophers would say. And so they would say, why rely on relationships to give you what you need? Because at some point in time, they're going to stop being your friend or you're going to have a different need. And when that happens, then you don't need them anymore. So don't worry about how you surround yourself with people. Don't worry about relying on others, but be self-sufficient in your own specific need. And so if you need something, go get it. If you need this, you make it happen and you be self-sufficient. That was the idea of the day. And so the church at Philippi would have understood that. And knowing that that is what they meant by being content. But Paul doesn't mean that. He's not saying be more self-sufficient in what you have. In fact, he's saying the opposite. And we're going to kind of get to that in just a second. But when we think about contentment, why are you and I not content with what God has given us? Why are we not content with the money that we have? Why are we not content with the things that, we, that, that are a part of our lives? Why are we not content with those things? And I think there's a lot of reasons, but a couple of camps I think that we tend to fall into. Are, are these. One of them is I think right, we, we, uh, we are in the camp of wishing away our life, right? We would say like, I wish I had more money. I wish I had more stuff, right? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so people, half of you understand that. Um, that's great. So, but right, so we talk about the things we wish. I wish I had this. How many times in our life, in our daily day, in our day-to-day activities do we say, I wish I had, or I wish this would be different. Or I wish I was in this situation. I wish my kids would act this way. I wish that my spouse would not be this way. And we can begin to wish our lives away to where we no longer have anything left. And we cannot be content. We cannot sit in hope because we are wishing our life away because we want something that somebody else has. Or maybe we fall in the camp of being if-then people. You know those people, right? I'm, I mean, I'm that person sometimes. If this happens, then. If I win the lottery, then I'll give. If I am given a little bit more, then I'll be generous. If I, just have, if I can just get one more raise, then we'll be content with what we have. I don't have to work six jobs, right? If I can do this, then this. If my kids will act in this way, then we'll be set for life. We are if-then people, and we depend on that. If, and I'm only going to be this if this happens. And we forget that God has called you and I to be content in the situation that we are in. But we cannot be content with the money we have or content with the way that our life has gone because we say, well, if this was just better, then my life would really be happier. I would have more hope. I'd have more joy. Maybe you're an if-then person. Or maybe you're, you're a, a bitter person. You're bitter because someone else has something different than you. And, and maybe you would never say you're bitter, but every time you talk about your neighbor, you talk about the guy up the street, right? You say, I mean, he has all that money, but I don't know where it came from. You know what I'm saying? 
right? And, and we get a little bit bitter. We're a little bit backbiting with that, right? We, we get upset when people have something. Well, they bought another new car. Man, money must be growing on the trees at their house, right? And we cannot be content because we're bitter with other people. I heard one time that uh, being bitter is like drinking poison and hope the other person dies. That's a, good, pretty good, a pretty good idea, I think. But we're bitter with what other people have. And so I think we fit in one of these three camps, right? We wish our life away, the if-then person, or we just flat out live in bitterness. But Paul said, look, it's, there's a better way than that. You and I are called to be content. We said, well, how in the world are we supposed to be content? And, and, and like, at what time in our lives are we supposed to be content? Like, when do we have a certain um, amount of money, then we can be content with that. And we could all, if I said, okay, write down on a piece of paper right now, if I told you this, write down the amount of money you would be content with if your family, your household brought in every, every day or every, every month, right? And you could write, and all those numbers would be different. As many people as there are, there'd be different numbers, right, all across, all across the room. And Paul's saying it doesn't matter what that number is. It just matters where our heart is and what we have committed to doing. He said, literally, I've learned to be content when I've been humbled, and I've learned to be content when I've abounded. And so let's just talk for a, just a quick minute about what that looks like. So what does it mean to be humble, like to, be, uh, uh, to abound in the midst of being humbled? How do we be content when we've been humbled? And, and so he's not just talking about money, although money is, a, is definitely an, the issue, the crux of the passage here. But he's been humbled in his life. I mean, the guy is in chains for the gospel, for doing nothing wrong by the r- rules and laws of the land. Like at, at what point in time should he be content with where he's at in his life? And maybe you're here today and you say, like, I can't be content. Like, I, this is a nice sentiment to be content. That's really cool. But I, that's not me. Like, I can't be that. You don't understand. Like, my family has died or I have this problem with my kids or I've got this disease or I've got this or I don't have any money. Like, you don't understand. I am a humbled person. How in the world am I supposed to be content? Doesn't make any sense. We have a hard time with that because we view the word content the same way that the, the philosophers did, right? Is that it was about self-sufficiency. What can I make? And I can't make my life any better, so how can I be content with that? Paul calls us to be content in the midst of being humbled. And I think that you and I can understand what humbling situations look like. I think we understand what it means to not have enough money at the end of the month. To not have enough money at the end of the paycheck. Or you cash your check and then all of a sudden it's all gone and you still have bills that you got to pay. Or you pay all your bills and you're like, all right, we've got 47 cents. What are we going to do with it? I remember when I was in seminary, uh, my, my wife and I, we, we, were, we would classify ourselves as poor. And, and, and so uh, at the end of the month, every month, we had just a, in a small amount of money. And we looked forward. Our, our favorite thing was there was a Mexican food restaurant right down the, the road from where we were at. And I could get a half order of beef nachos. Let's be honest. This guy's not eating a half order of anything, okay? And so a half order of beef nachos. My wife would get a, a, um, a half order of bean nachos, okay? And, and so all that together, and we would eat chips and hot sauce literally for hours because it was free, all right? And we would fill up on the water because that was free as well. And so like for an hour and a half, we'd just sit there eating chips and hot sauce, knowing we, our meal was also chips. It's not like it was any different, right? We ate all the free stuff and we could tip and be out of there for like eight bucks. And we're like, man, we are living it up. And some months we would go twice. We just print money. We just had it all, you know, right? 
And we, I understand what that looks like. You know, we all understand what those times are. We don't have enough, or we feel like we don't have enough, or we don't have enough to do what we want to do. But Paul goes on and also talks about how we're supposed to be content when we're abounding. And let's be realistic. If I said, you, God's called you to be content, name the way you want to live so that you can be content. We would all say, I'll be rich. Right? If God gave you an option and said, I'm calling you to contentment, who in here would like to be content with riches? Every hand would go up. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be a billionaire for Jesus. That, I have no problem. Right? A friend of mine went and served on a mission field in Hawaii. Great. That sounds good. Suffering for Jesus in Hawaii under the sun, right? Um, telling people about Jesus as you know, you're, you're laying out on the beach getting a tan, right? So, but look, we, we would all have this cross we would like to bear, right? Yeah, I'll be rich. Sure, give me all the money in the world. I read about all these rich people and they squander all their money. Man, if I had money, right, hear it, if, then I would, I would do something else, right? We'd like to be this person who lives in riches, who abounds in riches. We, I know what it's like to be content with uh, having everything. Well, of course you do. You have everything. What else do you need to have? Right? It may not make sense to us when we read this. We think, oh, well, of course, if Paul had everything, he would have nothing to complain about. Oh, it's also not very true. 1 Timothy 6 uh, says this, um, verse six and, verses 6 through 10, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. There's our word again, content. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. It goes on in verse 17, he says, that's for the rich in this present age. Charge them with not being haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. We read that and we say, yeah, rich people need to be careful. I mean, really, like we read all the passages, right, where it's easier for um, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than to a rich person to get into heaven. And we would say, yeah, those rich people, like they need to watch out because they're going to, I mean, they're having a hard time. But if I was rich, if I was rich, I wouldn't be anything like them. I wouldn't squander my money. I would give it all away, right? If I won the lottery tomorrow, I wouldn't be bankrupt in two years. I would do something with it. The Lord would be glorified through it. But we'd say, we don't really know and understand what that looks like. In fact, if I took a straw poll and I just said, I'm not going to because some of you will be very embarrassed to either do it or not do it. But if I said, okay, raise your hand if you think you're rich. And I gave you all that option, right? And you could raise your hand or you could not raise your hand, right? That some of you would raise it and some of you would not raise it. The majority would probably not raise it. I wouldn't raise my hand typically, right? Because I wouldn't consider myself to be a rich person. But let me just tell you this. Can we just understand this very important truth this morning? That rich is relative. Being rich is always relative. Let me tell you, let me tell you what I mean. And now, now you can actually raise your hand here in a second, okay? Um, I know you've been looking forward to raising your hand all service, right? Um, if you own a vehicle, a car, it could be a Pinto, it could be 1930s, it could be a Flintstone Mobile, it could be the newest edition of whatever. If you own a car, or you and the bank owns a car, either way, if you own a vehicle, raise your hand. Uh, 
Straw poll. Okay, great. 283. Sounds good. So 283 people own a vehicle. That sounds good. How many of you own more than one vehicle? Raise your hand. All right, cool. Great. That's, that's good. A lot of you own vehicles. Doesn't matter what kind, make or model of it. But I want to give you a round of applause. Because everyone who raised your hand, you were in the 91st percentile in wealth in the world. 9% of the world owns a vehicle. Nine. Which means if you own a vehicle in this room, whether you're a teenager or whether you're an adult, right, it doesn't matter. If you own a vehicle, you are richer than 91% of the world. If I had led with the question, how many people in here think they're in the top 10% wealthiest people in the world? Like no hand would go up, right? No one would say that. But now it looks different. You see, in America, rich is relative because here's what we do. We define rich as someone who has more than we do. So the neighbor who's got a bigger house, well, they're rich. I'm not rich. They're rich. And that's how we see it all, right? But rich is very relative. In fact, if you make, and you can raise your hand again if you want to, if you want, you don't, no, we won't do it. It's because no one feels like they're embarrassed. If you make more than $3,600 a year, if you make more than that in one year, you are richer than 80% of the entire world. So if you're a teenager working at McDonald's, Right? If your life consists around the phrase, do you want fries with that? Right? You are richer than 80% of the world. Can I just tell you this this morning? You are rich. You have all the money you need. And so we go back to 1 Timothy, right? And he gives you warnings, every one of you a warning, as to what the rich people should do. So you say, well, I don't know anything about being content with, with an, an abounding wealth. You're right. Because you have abounding wealth, but you're not, you don't know anything about being content with it. Because we see someone else who's rich, and we think, well, if I could be like them. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You have a lot, and you're not content with what you have. But we're going to seek more and more. But Paul calls, calls us <clears throat> to give Paul calls, calls us to be content with what we have. And I'll be honest with you, it's really an impossible feat. It's impossible for me to stand up here and know how much money some people make and to not be a little bit jealous, to not use if-then statements, to not wish my life away that I was like them or I had the things that they had. It'd be really hard not to do that. It's impossible to do it. Because I want what someone else has because I don't live my life content with what I have. Right? I want to I wanna be at a bigger church. I want kids that are a little bit nicer. They don't act up. They don't say blah, 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 blah. Right? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, Hudson. Right? Well, I want this. And, and, and this is the, the mindset we get into. But God says, no, give generously and be content whatever your situation is. Well, how in the world is that even possible? Because according to these old philosophers and this word that Paul uses right before he redeems it, he says this, you should be content, and that contentment means you be self-sufficient. And so you make for your own. And the reality of it is you make more money, and so what do you do? You want more money. You buy a nicer house, man, this is awesome. But what if we had a little bit more money, we could pay it off in 10 years? Well, we had a little bit more money, then our next house could be a little bit, right? And, we, and maybe, don't, maybe you're not thinking on a grandiose scale, but you're thinking on some sort of scale. 
And we want to get more, we want to get more, we want to get more. And we think in our minds, if I get more, I can do, I can do good with it. Right? Several years ago, um, when we were still living in South Carolina, the, the, the uh, Powerball jackpot was like three quarters of a billion dollars or something. That's just, there's like made up numbers. They're not even real. Okay, no one has that much money. Right? And so I told Jennifer, I said, we should play the lottery. Because, I mean, if we win, think of all the good we could do for the Lord. Right? And so, like, I, I start in my mind, because that's just how I am, I start making a list of all the things I'm going to spend this money on. Right? And I'm going to give this much away, and I'm going to go down to Haiti, where I have a friend who's a missionary, and say, what do you need? How about 50 mil? Will that help you? How about, let's make it 100 mil, right? And I'm like, this would be awesome. I could be so generous. I could give all this, stuff, all this money away. And I, and I got my list, and I finished my list, and I'm like, I have $200 million left. I don't even know what to do with. Don't worry. I didn't win. I don't have $200 million in the bank, so you don't have to worry about any of that. And we ended up didn't play, so it didn't matter anyway. But I was thinking, man, I, I could wish it away. I could be thinking, man, I could spend two hours thinking, man, what, what if I did this and I could have this much money? And what, if I, what would I do with this much money? And I'm thinking, am I even content with what I have? Am I content with the family that I have? Am I content with the house that I have? Am I content with the amount of money that I make? And how is it even possible for me to do that? And the third thing I want to share, the last thing I want to share with you today is this. The secret of contentment is finding our satisfaction in Christ. Right? Be content. I've learned to be content when I've abounded. I've learned to be content when I've been humbled. I've learned to be content in every situation. Why? For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You want to know what that verse means? This is what it means. Literally in Greek, if you translate it out, it would say this. I can do all these things. What things? Live in abundance. Live with nothing. I can live contentment in contentment. You know why? Because my satisfaction is found in Jesus and in no one else. My hope is found in him, and my hope is not found in my riches. I am not content because my identity and my hope are found in my earning potential. Can I just tell you? Your net worth, or however you perceive that net worth being, is not equal to your self-worth. Your self-worth was founded on the cross 2,000 years ago. Your net worth doesn't determine that. But we find our identity in what we make. And even if you say, no, I'm humble, like I don't even care about that stuff, I don't care about money, we care. We care about it. Because we find identity in it, and we find significance in it. So we can make a little bit more money, or if our kids are a little bit more well-behaved, or if our life looks a little bit better, people will see us and they'll think, man, these people got it made. They've got it together. That's not contentment. Paul's in change. In Acts, in, in Acts 16, Paul's in Philippi, and he gets thrown in jail for doing nothing wrong. Right? And he's in jail, and so what does he start doing? Complaining? No. Singing hymns? And everyone in the jail is listening to him sing. And an earthquake happens. The shackles fall off. The doors fly open. The jailer's like, oh, no, they're going to get out. He says, don't worry about it. We haven't left. We're still here. Jailer comes to know Jesus. His whole family comes to know Jesus. Paul gets out of that jail, and guess what they do? They celebrate the fact that he was in jail. Because he was in jail, people heard the gospel. And they responded to it because his identity was wrapped up in who Jesus is and not in what he had or how his life was going. Amen? And that's what you and I are called to do today, today as well. We're called to be content in what we have because our identity is not found in him. And so maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I, I'm not content. I want more. I don't know why, but I just, I want more and more. Well, Paul's redeeming this word of self-sufficient. 
I'm not self-sufficient in order for me to be able to gain what I need, but I'm sufficient in the Lord. As he lives inside of me, right? Galatians 2.20, right? That, that way I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the life that I can be sufficient in. That's the life I can find identity in. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not content where I am. I need more money. I want more money Then I would tell you this. You don't understand the gospel of Jesus. It's not about the stuff we get. It's about the glory and the honor of Jesus and the way that that is spread. And so if you're in a humble circumstance, you know what? You might, be, you might need to do some things to get out of there, but you might be in a humble circumstance so that those around you can see the light of the gospel. You need to be content with the money that you have. You know why? Because it was God giving it to you and you didn't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. You're a steward of it. If someone gave me a gift, I would have no thought about if I had to give it to somebody else, I'd give it to somebody else because it's not mine to give. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? Man, I, I don't have hope, right? I don't have hope. I don't have peace. I don't have contentment in anything in my life. And it's because we're chasing the dollar or we're chasing, right, to be the Joneses, right? We're, we're chasing to be whoever we want to be that seems better than us. And we're not chasing after Christ. Your identity is found in him for you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, not through yourself. So this morning, is it a wrong understanding of the gospel that we have? Maybe, we, maybe honestly, if we're, being, if we're being honest with ourselves, we're very religious, but we don't understand the gospel. We've never submitted underneath Jesus. So we'll never be content in anything else. Maybe that describes how you are today. Or maybe, maybe we've just decided not to live in the provision and the power of Jesus, but in the provision that we can provide. So I pray this morning um, as we close, we're going to close our time. And if you would just pray with me. God, I pray for our hearts this morning. God, that our hearts would be content. Not because we have high valued possessions. Not because we have everything that we could have ever wanted. Not because we can get whatever we want when we want it. But God, we have contentment because we sit and rest in you. I pray this morning that we would find all of our peace and all of our hope and all of our contentment and our identity, not in the things that we have or the things we can earn, but in you and in you alone. Lord, may we be content in you because we can do all these things through Christ who strengthens us. We pray these in your name. Amen. You'll stand with me this morning as we have a time of application and invitation.